From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're confused about the difference between a viral mutation and a variant, my guest will be able to help. Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy is Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate University Hospital, and I've asked her for a crash course in microbiology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reddy. Thank you so much, Amber. It's good to be here. Now, what distinguishes a coronavirus among viruses? So coronaviruses, actually, interestingly, were not even identified until the 1960s as uh, causes of typically the common cold. In terms of what distinguishes them, when you look at them under the microscope, I think we've become familiar with the um, spike and crown appearance that gives them their name as coronaviruses. So that's, you know, in the microbiology lab, one of the things that makes them unique. In terms of how they're functioning in a pandemic um, and the risks to humans, I think one of the most important features of coronaviruses is their ability to live in animals and in multiple species of animals and then become transmitted to humans and cause human infection. So it really increases the likelihood of new viruses emerging when you have such a large pool that exists throughout the animal kingdom. So how many different coronaviruses are there? And I, do we maybe not know all of them? Yes, that's actually correct. So when you look at the animal kingdom, there are hundreds and probably thousands of coronaviruses, most of which are existing in bats. Um, in humans, we have seven coronavirus species that have been identified as causing human infection. So um, four of those are the ones that I mentioned earlier that cause really the, the common cold and upper respiratory tract infections. These may cause other kind of systemic illness like diarrhea or generalized illness in infants or people with compromised immune systems. But for the most part, they were pretty mild pathogens. Then we have three coronaviruses that have really caused the more severe types of infections. Um, the first one of those was the original SARS virus um, that emerged in the earlier 2000s. And that one caused the, the so SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Virus Syndrome. Um, and, this, and this one is something that we saw largely emerging in Asia, but really caused a, a very severe illness with a high level of fatality and severe pneumonia. Um, and one of the features of that that allowed us to get it under control was that the onset of the ability to spread the virus coincided with the onset of symptoms. And there was much less of an asymptomatic kind of picture with that virus. So that was the first SARS virus. And then we also have the MERS virus and the Middle East respiratory virus. And that one um, continues to cause sporadic severe illness in, um, in the Middle East. And then of course we have our SARS-CoV-2 that emerged in 2019. So those are really the seven coronaviruses that are that are causing illness in humans. Are, let me ask you if coronaviruses, are they unique that they have some that cause mild illness and others that can be deadly? Or do you see other viruses that have like a range of different types that some are severe and some are not? There, there definitely are other viruses that have a range of severity. I mean, even if you look at influenza viruses, uh, even though we're, you know, you were thinking about different species, there's different strains of influenza viruses, there is a huge variety of severity when you look at the potential for pandemics in that one type of virus. So 
Uh, so I would say that's not particularly unusual. Do scientists agree that this coronavirus was transmitted from an animal to a human? Or do we know that for sure yet? That is a great question. If, if you look at the headlines, even today, this topic continues to be debated. So I think there's a decent amount of evidence that it, most scientists, I would say, believe this probably was an, an animal to human transmission. And the accumulated evidence for the original SARS, like I was mentioning, as well as MERS, would suggest that both of those were uh, animal to human transmissions. Because of the location of a virology laboratory in Wuhan, China, uh, that actually was studying coronaviruses at the time of the outbreak, as you can imagine, that obviously raises concerns and questions and suspicions um, as to whether there was a possibility that the current strain emerged from uh, from a laboratory accident or even potentially something more sinister. Um, I, you know, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to impossible, in my opinion, for us to actually prove this one way or another. I think there's likely a vested interest in not having a lot of clear cut information um, be released to try and explain whether or not something like that would have happened. So I think it's going to be very tricky for us to fully trace whether or not there was a possibility of a laboratory release in this case, whether accidental or otherwise. Um, that having been said, obviously, you know, thinking forward, it's important to consider both possibilities for human safety. So, you know, the, the reality is we know that there are, as I said, hundreds to thousands of coronavirus species currently existing in animals that have the possibility to mutate and become um, viruses that can infect humans. And, and at the same time, we also know that viruses are being studied throughout the world. We know that there is a potential for bioterrorism or accidents that could occur. And all of these things need to be considered, I think, in terms of, like I said, a public health approach. Can, can you explain how an individual coronavirus begins and, and how long it lives and how it dies naturally? I mean, unchecked, would it just go on existing indefinitely? So any virus that's going to carry on needs to have a host that is capable of completing that transmission cycle. So the unique feature of viruses compared to uh, other organisms is that they don't, uh, they, they really can't replicate unless they have a host, a living host in which to carry on their replication cycle. Um, so there are some bacteria that are they're somewhat similar in that fashion, but basically viruses are really, they're not independent organisms. They are dependent on their host in order to uh, propagate. So when it, when it comes to where does the coronavirus come from, you know, it has to really come from another coronavirus uh, and whether or not it changed in order to actually become a coronavirus that can be transmitted within a new set of hosts is, is really the question. Now, when we're talking about human coronaviruses and specifically the virus that causes COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, it where it comes from is from a person who has an active infection. So you really have to have a person with an active infection that is shedding replication competent virus um, and or a very, very close um, circumstance where somebody came into contact with a surface or with you know, air that had the virus in it. 
that was recently in contact with another person. Now, I think part of the question you're asking here is, you know, the, the level of transmission that can occur on surfaces or in the air with this particular coronavirus. From all the evidence that we have, it, it looks like surface transmission is relatively rare. So that this coronavirus can apparently survive on surfaces for, you know, up, up to days, depending on the surface. So cool, hard metal surfaces are the place that it would most likely be able to survive. Soft, fuzzy, warm surfaces or sunlit surfaces are, are unable to really support living virus. But what to what extent does anybody touching those surfaces and then touching their nose, does that really contribute to transmission of this particular coronavirus? It looks like that is pretty minimal. And most of it is direct exposure, mostly to droplets from people with infection and a little bit to aerosols. And that is something that I think is a bit unique that has been recognized with this particular coronavirus of SARS-CoV-2 is the ability for it to survive in very small particles suspended in the air for potentially up to a couple hours, although likely, um, you know, it's really probably shorter timeframes than a couple hours that result in active transmission. So if I were to catch the coronavirus and it's in my body, would it live there comfortably until my immune system gets rid of it? Yes, this is an acute infection. Um, even though people really are experiencing these syndromes that are being referred to as long COVID, they, we don't have evidence to date that the active virus or a living virus is surviving in people's bodies much beyond this, the course of about 10 days. So um, a lot of our protocols for when people could come off isolation if they are sick with COVID-19 relates to the fact that once the immune response kicks in, it actively gets rid of replication competent virus so that, that those viruses that are able to be spread to other people are killed by our immune system and we get over the virus. People who have compromised immune systems um, or people who are very, very severely ill and require ICU level care may shed live virus for a little bit longer of potentially up to about three weeks instead of the 10 days. But again, that's a relatively rarer subgroup of people um, and still represents what we consider to be an acute infection that ultimately the immune system is going to overcome. And that at that point, any kind of uh, virus that's residual in the system is more like particles of the body getting rid of the infection that was there originally. And when you say shed the virus, you mean the virus comes out when they cough or sneeze? Yes, exactly. Okay. Also speaking, I mean, we've, we've recognized in, of course, we knew this before, but I think it's come to light even more as we've had to think about transmission of this virus. When people speak, there are small droplets that are created that can cause infection. So people, anybody really in, in close proximity to somebody else having a conversation can potentially transmit the virus and doesn't have to necessarily be coughing, sneezing, et cetera. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy. She's been telling us about the coronavirus that's responsible for the global pandemic. I'd like to have you explain to us what a strain is and, and how it differs from a mutation or a variant. 
Sure. I'm going to start out with mutation. So that's really the, the first thing that happens. Basically, all viruses mutate. So they um, viruses, when they replicate, they have kind of machinery. They, they oftentimes use our own machinery as well as their own machinery in order to make copies of themselves. And there are some viruses that are what we would say very faithful in how they copy themselves and others that are much less faithful in how they copy themselves. And so, but regardless, as they copy themselves, mistakes are made along the way. Those mistakes, as we would say, so changing from the original series of either RNA or DNA, so the original series of genetic material that the virus was made of into something that's slightly different. So maybe one of those little elements, we call those base pairs. So one of those, those pieces of RNA um, was changed or a piece of DNA was changed along the way. Uh, that's a mutation. And it literally happens in, in every single virus. It happens in our own body. So it's just a change in the genetic sequence that's occurring as a virus is, is copying itself. Um, a strain is actually, I think part of the problem with this is that these are uh, not well-defined scientific terms. So at some point, a virus that has had mutations becomes different enough that we're able to identify certain characteristics that make it unique. Uh, and then at that point, it becomes a strain. A variant and a strain are really the same thing. So I think throughout the course of this particular pandemic, the term variant has overtaken the term strain in describing what we're seeing. And but really those terms are relatively interchangeable. With some virologists would argue that a strain is something more sort of a change that's more significant than a variant, um, but that's not universally agreed upon. So there's no really one clear definition of when something has become a strain. Um, so I'm going to focus on variants and really what we're dealing with with variants is, like I said, the virus has changed enough through these mutations that have occurred where there are some recognizable features of it being different and we're seeing multiple multiple viruses that have similar signatures so that look like they're about the same as each other. Um, and that point we're able to say, okay, this is not just the individual variation that occurs from person to person. So, you know, if you take two people who are both sick with COVID-19 and you're able to capture virus from their systems, even within their own one individual person, you're going to have multiple different viruses that are subtly different by one or two um, base pairs. So one or two little bits of, of genetic material are going to be different. Between two people, it may be a little bit more. But some of the critical features and the special areas of the virus that we worry about the most, if you start seeing similar patterns in those critical areas, that's when you have a variant. And you start seeing those over and over and over again in a similar population, then you can say, okay, now we really have a variant that we're dealing with here. So it sounds like the fact that this coronavirus has mutated is not at all surprising, uh, and that the variants that have emerged are not very surprising either. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. The the main uh, kind of goal, if viruses can have a goal, that they, they're following the path of least resistance. So whatever allows them to do a better job of moving from one host to another and replicating themselves within a particular host, is that's what's going to happen. 
So anything that facilitates better replication is going to be, as we say, selected for. So these natural changes or mutations that are occurring, some of them are going to be completely irrelevant or maybe even make the virus weaker. And ultimately, those are just going to disappear because they're not providing any kind of advantage to the virus. The ones that are going to be, as we say, selected for are the ones that allow the virus to do a better job of moving between hosts. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about SARS-CoV-2 with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy after this short break. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy. She's the Chief of Infectious Disease, and she's been explaining the nature of viruses in general and the one that caused the pandemic specifically. I'd like to ask you about the variants that have emerged in India, Brazil, and elsewhere. How do they get named? For instance, B.1.620, what does the B stand for and what do the numbers mean? Yeah, so the original virus as it came from Wuhan, China was classified as an A virus. And later it changed enough that again, we were able to recognize some, some patterns and the differences and the different sequences that he had emerged. And so there, at that point, most of the viruses that were circulating in Europe and the United States gained a B designation. Later, uh, there's a separate kind of naming scheme for viruses called the Pango classification. And that's where, when you look at viruses that emerged in Japan and Brazil, they will have this P designation. So that's, that's for the Pango designation. So honestly, it's a little bit all over the place. And part of that is because it's not common that we have something that emerges so rapidly and that we have such a need to quickly understand how these variants are behaving. So that's, so that's where the first letter comes from. After that, um, what they're looking for is sort of, when was this identified? Was this the first one that was identified? Um, is it, uh, and how many different samples were sent that looked like this before this identification was sort of finalized as being an actual variant. So that's what the subsequent numbers are standing for. So, so like 117 would be, there were 117 different samples that all carried this very similar appearance at the time that people agreed that this is a variant that needs sort of attention. Um, and, and even at that point, I would I really give a lot of credit to the UK uh, systems that were in place to try and identify variants. It was something that, you know, courts consortium of scientists were looking at and were able to say, hey, something's going on here that really is raising some red flags and not, you know, the rest of the world, I would say, was not quite as quick to either pick up on that and or identify it as something that should be tracked. And over time, you know, just within the last six months, five months even, we've seen a lot more organization of virologists um, working together with public health officials to try to classify the various variants that have emerged and figure out what they might mean for diagnosis of the infection, transmission of the infection, um, and use of any kind of therapeutics and vaccines. So when an, a variant emerges from, say, Brazil, are we sure that it started in Brazil or is that just where it was found? I mean, it may have started elsewhere and 
the person traveled into Brazil, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So where we're, and that's one of the reasons why actually it has been recommended that we avoid using uh, locations as a way of identifying these types of strains. Of course it happens. It's definitely happening um, in terms of the way people are identifying things. And um, any, if you, any location throughout the globe that has had a lot of transmission has had emergence of variants. Um, and specifically now that we're looking for them has had variants of concern, meaning that um, these, are, these are variants that have the potential to impact at least some aspects that we care about related to the virus. So I agree with you. Um, using the geography is, is less than ideal, and you're absolutely right that we don't really know specifically when this one particular variant emerged as uh, as something that could establish itself within a population. What we do know and where where these kind of geographical terms come from is that's where enough of the same variant was identified originally. So the testing that we have here in central New York, if someone goes in for a COVID test, will they get a report that tells them you have the variant from India or you have this variant or will they just get a yes or no, there's the presence of coronavirus? Yes, they, they, at this point, they just get a yes or no, there's the presence of coronavirus. It really requires additional level of sequencing in order to try and determine whether any of the known variants of concern are present in a particular sample. So typically that was being done by New York State Laboratory Wadsworth for New York State. Um, CDC has had locations where they're obtaining samples to look at. Um, there are private universities, et cetera, that are looking for these. So it's something that would need to be looked for in a more in-depth way. So we won't really know that unless we're looking for it, whether whether it's there. Correct. Yep. And and as I said, you know, it, it really before the B117 variant emerged, there were other, you know, there was significant variation from the original Wuhan strain, uh, but that wasn't initially something that people kind of focused on as being of significance. And it wasn't until later when we started to say, okay, maybe this is something that we really need to consider and how we approach the battle against the COVID-19. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy. She's been telling us about the coronavirus that's responsible for the global pandemic. Do variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which has been responsible for the global pandemic, do the variants cause different symptoms in people? As far as we can tell, the symptoms appear to be very similar. The severity has been debated. So there are some reports that suggest that certain variants may cause more severe illness but uh, other reports are less clear on that matter. So it's very difficult actually, because um, if you have a situation where a, a surge or a, a large scale outbreak is occurring, there are so many different aspects of the healthcare system that can be impacted that to now look back and study whether or not a, that a particular strain that be, or, or variant that may be involved in that case is actually causing more severe illness or it's just there are more cases that are being identified or the health system is under strain, it's very difficult to tease out. So at this point, 
what we think of as COVID-19, I would say by and large is the same spectrum of illness across the board, regardless of, of which variant might be involved um, with the possibility of some of the variants causing more severe disease that is, I would say to the state still unconfirmed. So not all of the variants are necessarily worse than the original virus. Some of them might be more dangerous or more infectious or cause more severe disease, but some of them may not, it sounds like. I would say uh, transmissibility seems to be the common feature, and that makes sense, right, because of what we were talking about related to as the virus mutates naturally, anything that makes it jump from one person to another more easily, so spread from one person to another more easily, um, or get into a host more easily, get into the host cells more easily once it's kind of uh, attached itself to the nose or the throat. Th that's what's going to make it survive, last, transmit from one person to the next. So I think that's been really the common theme is that it, it appears to the best of our ability to study this, that most of the variants seem to be a bit more transmissible and or possibly significantly more transmissible than the original variants or the, the original viruses. How do we know if the existing vaccines are going to be effective against the variants? Great question. And this is obviously top on everyone's list, right? So um, what has been done mostly to date is taking Sera, so uh, blood that has specifically the immune components of the blood removed and separated, and then testing that in laboratories against various different variants of the virus and looking to see to what degree um, are people who have been vaccinated. So the serum from people who have been vaccinated, to what degree is that able to neutralize, so to get rid of um, the virus that has been provided in the laboratory. So most of the data that we're getting comes from these types of laboratory studies. So you're essentially mixing together virus with um, the serum of people who have been vaccinated and trying to see, okay, it, is the virus now getting killed by this, um, by this mechanism, by the mixing of serum from vaccinated people, um, serum from convalescent people, so people who have gotten sick with variants and then recovered is, a, is another way of, of looking at it. Um, but the it, that's somewhat incomplete because that is specifically looking at one component of the immune system and the response to the virus and the immune system is complex and there are multiple different aspects of the immune system that are getting engaged both by natural illness as well as by vaccines. So there's a significant possibility that these types of mixing studies underestimate the degree to which a vaccine might protect people against a variant. So, so I may mix together serum with a virus and say, oh gosh, um, with this combination, it looks like only, you know, there's a 70% efficacy of the vaccine versus a 90% efficacy from an original, you know, a previous variant. But when you actually look at this in a person, their overall immune response may be significantly better than that 70%. So ultimately where our real answers are gonna come from is in real life situations, possibly clinical trials as well. It's, getting, it's hard to do these trials sometimes when variants change very quickly, right? So you enroll somebody and then another variant has come along and they're in a different population, et cetera. Um, but 
looking at what's happened in real life in uh, countries where mass vaccination has occurred and variants are circulating, the data are overall reassuring. So Qatar recently published some data where um, even though there has been significant emergence of variants and transmission of variants within the population, they have seen that the overall vaccine protection remains very high um, and the degree of severe illness, hospitalization and death among vaccine recipients, especially those who are fully vaccinated is uh, remarkably low and along the lines of the protection that was originally anticipated from the vaccines. Periodically, we hear that, you know, maybe we're going to need a booster if we've already been vaccinated there, you know, maybe in the future, we'll need a booster. Is that in response to variants in, in the event that, you know, if the vaccine doesn't work against the variant, is that why a booster might be needed? Absolutely. That's exactly the goal of a booster. And there are numerous companies. So the same companies who have made the original vaccines are uh, by and large all looking into making boosters to target different variants. Is this particular coronavirus something that could be eradicated like smallpox or is this a virus that we're likely to just have to live with? Over time, we've become a little bit more uh, realistic about the likelihood that this is a virus we're going to continue to live with. Uh, I've been likening it a bit to dropping a, a rock in a pool of water where the initial wave is quite big and over time the, the waves get smaller. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping that's what happens um, given our numerous approaches, particularly vaccination, um, but natural immunity, that we will experience, we will likely experience additional waves. Basically, I can guarantee we'll experience additional waves of illness. Um, hopefully, certainly in the United States with our vaccine approach, these waves will be less severe. I think the global nature of this and, and the different pockets of areas where there are you know, vaccines are not available, vaccines are not being taken up, et cetera, it makes for a lot more uncertainty. But uh, this is not something that we're going to be able to eradicate at this point. Um, our hope, I think, really is that we get it to a point where it's overall less severe and something that we can better manage. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.